Welcome to Devils in the Dark with me, Helen Anderson. And me, Danny Howard. We're two best friends entering the world of true crime. I'll be sharing the stories of the worst and most horrific murder cases in history with the help of professional criminologists. And we're taking you along for the ride. In this episode, it's one of the most infamous serial killers and cannibals in history. You guessed it, it's Jeffrey Dahmer. How have you been? Great. Yeah, okay. I'm feeling a little bit um, like worse for wear today, we'll just say. There is a bucket with a bin liner in it sitting next to Danny right now. Do you know what, actually, Helen? I left the bowl in the car. Oh, is that in I've your handbag? Put the plastic bag in my handbag. Disgusting. I'm quite well versed in being sick in my handbag. At least I've lined it. <laughs> <laughs> Well, hopefully you'll be able to get through today. I am quite, I'm quite excited about this one. Yeah. Uh, just because I am hugely naive. I don't know much about Jeffrey Dahmer, but his his name pops up so much in like popular culture, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. So he's quite famously he a is bit very, of a cannibal. Yeah. Um, I have a question for you. Yeah. Let's say you're sat down, <laughs> right, outside. Yeah. Um... And you're like, oh, fuck, I'm so hungry. I'm so hungry. Mm-hmm. Right. And you're, you're just, you're famished. You're so hungry. You you can't remember the last time you ate. You're so hungry. Mm. And someone comes along and is like, I feel like it's someone you trust. Okay. Um, I feel I like, know where this is going, but continue. <laughs> and they're like, oh, Helen, I've got this plate of food here. I see that you're hungry. You're wasting away from hunger. You're so hungry. And I've actually got this plate of food here. It's a Kiev, your favourite. Um, but it is made it's made with human meat. Mm-hmm. Because I've actually I saw that you were hungry and I just wanted to gift you a bit of my meat. <laughs> right? And it's not damaged the person to a point where it would like disable them mm-hmm. or sort of like affect their like daily life. Mm-hmm. And they're offering you this Kiev made from your own meat. You can choose your own sides. What mm. are you having? Chips. Um, chips. Peas. I didn't know where you were going to go with that. Actually, spaghetti hoops. That's, I, don't, I just can't agree with that. Anyway, continue. And yeah, you yeah, and I just want me, to nourish it. I want to nourish. I want to nourish you with my meat. Do would you try it? Yeah. I li- I like I was waiting for you to ask me that because I already knew what you were going to ask me and I was I was already thinking yeah, I'd eat it. Would you Would you eat the whole I, thing? I think it depends on where the meat was from. Like if they were like, "Hi, I made you a kiev out of my dick meat," I'd be like, "Nah," because it's their dick. Like I think if it's sort of like a genitalia meat, then no. But if it's like a nice bit of thigh or an ass cheek or like a breast, like a peck or, or a bit of bingoing, I'd eat it. I'd a love bit to, of bingo wing. Well, like your muscle and your arm. Sometimes I, I can't um, imagine bingo wing would be like the. No, I imagine bingo wing to be like the flobbly bit. You know, like, like when like you get chicken fatty, thighs like under the skin. Would you eat human flesh if you had to? Um, I'd eat it even if I didn't have to. Well, yeah, that's what I mean. Like out of like that's just it. You don't. I want to try it. Yeah. Would you try it? Um, so, considering I don't eat, like I've never ever enjoyed eating meat mm-hmm. um when i was a small child 
um, I used, my mum used to pick me up from the childminders and I'd fall asleep on the bus home and she'd end up like picking mints out of like minced beef out of my cheeks like a hamster because my childminder wouldn't let you leave the table it's that classic like oh well you can't leave the table until you've finished the food because we don't waste food here but I just didn't want to eat I never wanted to eat the meat part of it so I used to stuff it in like my bottom lip and like between my lip and my teeth and like a hamster and, like all in my cheeks like a hamster <laughs> and then fall asleep on the bus home and she'd like have to pick it out oh that's vile. <laughs> <laughs> i think it's quite ingenious I mean, it is, oh, like, well done five-year-old me why didn't you say why didn't you tell anyone it didn't matter she just like you you, you finished it or you didn't leave the table okay. i sat at a table for two hours before i don't care but you know you shove it in your gob how have, I not, how have I not known this about you? I don't know. I'm like in a way, I was kind of proud of it because <laughs> I'm Great like, yeah, story. I got round that. But um, so, but I think I'd probably give it a nibble. I don't know what form I'd want it in, though. I think that's the thing. I don't, you know. Now that you say, it, I don't know if I. I think if I was starving, like you said, then I probably would eat the Kiev. If it was just out of pure. Uh, intrigue I don't know if I'd eat the whole Kiev what if it wasn't a Kiev what if it was like here's a steak I don't know I think I'd just try a bit I don't know if I'd eat the whole thing though because I think you know what it is you're like "Mm, a bit odd but I want to try it just because I want to know what it tastes like yeah I think that's I think if you ever yeah I think I think also it would be important to me that nobody was harmed in the making of this meat I would also eat my own meat would you? Yeah, because I'm. I'd be more comfortable with that if they were like Helen. You've grown an extra arm. You want <laughs> us to chop it off? All right, I'll eat it. <laughs> anyway, can I just get on with the podcast? Now? Shall we? I feel like before we and learn before, any more actually, home truths. Also, I'm. I'm fine. By the way, thanks for asking. <laughs> Look, I'm providing you with quality entertainment here. So this is a fairly big story. Bear it in mind. Cool. And and listeners' discretion is pretty gruesome, but that's why you're here, <laughs> listening to a true crime podcast because because you fucking love it. <laughs> so it's the evening of July twenty second, nineteen ninety one, in Milwaukee. Can't say Milwaukee without saying it Milwaukee, at uh, Wisconsin. Thirty two year old Tracy Edwards finds himself in a small one bedroom apartment. The movie Exorcist 3 is playing on the bedroom TV. Tracy has been invited there by a friendly stranger he met only hours before. The man had offered Tracy money and beer if he'd come home with him to pose for nude photographs. Once in his apartment, the friendly stranger suddenly changes. The strange man begins to rock back and forth and chants along to the film. When the priest becomes possessed by the devil in a scene, Tracy notices the man becomes visibly excited. The man then lays his head on Tracy's chest and begins to listen to his heartbeat. He says to Tracy, I'm going to eat your heart. The man makes Tracy lie on the floor and points a knife to his groin. The man tells Tracy that he doesn't like being left alone. He puts handcuffs on Tracy, who, in an attempt to appease the stranger, agrees to only have one wrist cuff. Tracy tries to calm the stranger down 
and eventually the stranger gets distracted by the film so this is Tracy's chance to escape he hits the man runs out the door handcuffs dangling from his wrist he flags down a police car and reports an attempted murder Tracy then leads them back to the apartment on North 25th Street when the officers go to investigate they cannot believe what they find they saw the body parts and then one of the officers said he heard a scream then he realised later he was the one who screamed when he saw the body between 1978 and 1991 Jeffrey Dahmer killed 17 young men and boys by luring them back to his apartment where he would drug and strangle them but it wasn't the act of murder that thrilled Dahmer it was the dead bodies of the victims that he was interested in he would dismember the bodies of his victims he'd dissolve parts in vats of acid and then the parts that he wanted to keep he'd put them in the fridge to eventually eat them later oh my god for 13 years Jeffrey had blended in with the rest of society killing and eating his way through almost 20 people and no one knew a thing That night, people were afraid. People were whispering under their breaths. You know, it was the devil. It's the devil. Are you ready to go back to the start, Danny? I'm so ready. So, Jeffrey Dahmer was born in Milwaukee in Wisconsin in May 1960. The family moved to Iowa before settling in Ohio in 1966. True crime author Harold Schechter, we love Harold, I love Harold's voice, says that Jeffrey did not have a picture-perfect childhood. He lived with his parents who were constantly, constantly, as he put it, at each other's throats. You know, his mother appeared to have been, you know, this raging bundle of neurotic behaviour. The parents were constantly fighting and screaming and And, you know, Dahmer himself, evidently, throughout much of his early life, was completely, completely ignored by both of them, were so caught up in their own psychological turmoil. Which is always the way, isn't it, with with a lot of these cases? Parents, troubled parents. Always the parents. Isn't it? Yeah. So in 1996, after the birth of his younger brother, Jeffrey's mum got really ill. Jeffrey was six at the time and felt neglected, a school official would later say. So sometimes, this is quite, it's not funny, but sometimes to get attention, I, sorry, it's just the mental image of this. Sometimes to get attention, Jeffrey would allegedly shout in public and contort his body into weird shapes. And I could just think of him going, look what I could do. <laughs> yeah, I like, don't think it was like that. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I know it's really sad. He's trying to get attention. He's just he needs he wants some attention, so he's just doing odd stuff like that. But just the image of him going throwing shapes. <laughs> he just think, oh, that's that fucking kid doing. <laughs> Nutcase. <laughs> Legend. No. <laughs> if I saw a kid doing that in the street, I'd be like, eh. Hey. yeah yeah and then you'd be like fuck off (laughs) at school he'd break into spasms and fall on the floor in the hallway in front of his teachers and classmates 
I don't like. I think obviously he wasn't having a seizure no, and nobody he noticed. He was doing it on purpose. He was doing it on purpose. Yeah. Uh, so he was he was proper showing some attention seeking traits here. Criminologist Dr. Elizabeth Yardley says that Jeffrey soon developed a deranged interest. Well, he had a really morbid curiosity with death from quite a young age. And this started with a fairly innocent insect collection. And he would keep the, the, the bodies of insects inside jars full of chemicals. This soon progressed. Um, he would go fishing and he was interested in what the fish looked like on the inside. So he would chop up the fish to, to have a look at this. I think fish look disgusting on the outside, let alone the inside. Um, <laughs> have you ever seen the inside of a yeah, fish? gross. Guts. There. Yeah, I don't think I have. Have you not seen a fish being gutted before? Probably. Just need to watch some nature shows. Probably just blocked it out. It's not particularly, in, not, it's not very nice. But he loved it. Milwaukee Journal journalist Anne Schwartz says that Jeffrey was fascinated at the fish's anatomy. It's fucking gross. Dahmer took his fish and cut it open. He was fascinated with the inside of the fish. And one of his little friends asked him, Jeffrey, why do you, why do you, what are you doing? And he said, just look at it. Just look how beautiful my fish gut is. <laughs> then He's a child as well at this point. If you were that other kid though, you'd be like, well, okay. And then just back away slowly. Okay. I have to give him name. But you can already picture where this is going, right? He's loving some fish guts. But just like eat the fish, innit? Just eat the fish. If you if you're so interested in the inside of the f- just eat it. He's not interested in eating the fish. He likes no, he, he likes the anatomy of the fish, but That's what, what's bothering me. But what I'm trying to say is if he's liking the anatomy of a fish at a young age. He just wants to see the inside. He just wants to see some inside. So that's where is this going? Oh, where God. is this going? I'll tell you where it's going. Jeffrey's morbid interest, it did begin to escalate. And uh, this is not cool. This is not cool. He moves on from dissecting fish to... (laughs) Hurts me to say it. Decapitating stray dogs. No! One of the the young boys in the neighbourhood was walking in the woods behind Dharma's house uh, when Dharma was a teenager and he came across the, the body of a dead dog and it was mutilated and it was nailed to a tree. I don't like it. He's, he's fucking crossed the line at the dog part, right? So it's all going downhill from here. I mean, he's, he's seen a line, he's jumped over it, yeah. really, isn't he? Yeah. He's leapt right over that line. That line is a mere dot in the distance mm-hmm. now, mm-hmm. isn't it? Yep. So, Jeffrey, he acquired some acid from his father, who was a chemist, and he would use it to dissolve animal corpses in his backyard shed. So there's some early interest in animal anatomy that blossoms into this very, very dark obsession and then somehow becomes tangled up with his own sexuality. I do find it quite interesting, like, how people's sexuality gets entangled with fucked up stuff. Oh, yeah. Like, it's actually quite a fascinating subject. I just cannot imagine how it feels to have like sexual urges which entwine with sort of the dark the darker side so yeah so because a lot of the themes that we've talked about have had that kind of yeah sexual element that like they do it because it arouses them or in this case as we're going to find out more like 
to do with the dead you know I just no I know exactly what you mean just find it fascinating yeah so I am particularly fascinated by um people who have sexual desires towards inanimate objects like mechaphiles people who are sexually aroused by machinery um that uh, it all started with that one documentary I think everybody must have seen it by now where um the guy is in love with his car and then he, he finds another guy who is also in love with his car and they decide to meet up so they can talk about how much they, like, love cars. And um, not in the way that, like, your Phil likes cars. Like, they love their cars. Mm-hmm. And um, But he goes and he's got this lovely red car and that's his girlfriend and he loves the car and he has sex with the car um, exactly in the way that you think it works, everybody. Puts it in the exhaust. No. <laughs> yeah. Ouch. And um, he goes to meet the other man who is also a mechophile and this one of the best bits of documentary making I've seen <laughs> where you know the producers have been like mate you aren't gonna fucking believe what's happening outside get the camera out the window now and they just open the curtain across the camera and you see the guy they've gone to meet eyeing up this red car and he goes and he sort of he likes this car he, he's he likes the visitor's car and he has his way with the car <laughs> He leaves the evidence on the bonnet. And so our mate, you know, subject of the documentary, goes out in the morning to make sure his car's all right, have a nice sleep. How you do? Oh, my God, there's semen on your bonnet. What's happened? And they have, like, an argument because the guy fucked his car. Fucking excellent. But, yeah, that was the... That was a digression, but so um, yeah. And me and my friend, I have a friend. We, we whenever we see an article, oh, I married a teacup. Like I will, we'll send each other these articles. Love it. It's fascinating. It, it, it is, isn't it? There's a woman who married the Eiffel Tower. Wow. Yeah. And it was. It's just the brain is phenomenal. Phenomenal, <laughs> isn't it? It's baffling. Like, and I think that is. It's like you said, because like. I guess we're these kind of like vanilla, oh, well, we just like having sex with like men. Boring. It's not. I'd it's, rather be boring. Yeah, I'd rather. I'm, I'm very horses, happy with that. Like, yeah, you know. or, or like fairground rides. But, but I just, I would love to understand more exactly what it's like. I think, yeah, like those pathways can get very, they like, I think certain scenarios from what I've seen in like TV shows and stuff, mm-hmm. certain traumas and things like that can physically rewire your brain and yeah. redirect your brain and those signals get crossed and go to the and so wrong something parts that of you the brain. feel is so normal to everyone else is like you can't do that and i know well i know that there's theories with like pedophilia that the maternal or paternal the sort of parental instinct in your brain that yeah. little parental center is quite close to the part of your brain that controls sexual urges and those there's a there's theories that those wires Literally are, are, are physically crossed in ah. the brain and that is why these people have no control have don't have control over mm-hmm. their urges even though they know it's not yeah correct but that's how they feel yeah god it must be awful yeah so. i can't imagine but um yeah. yeah so it's really interesting yeah definitely anyway uh, carrying on so jeffrey did not get aroused by fairground rides or the Eiffel Tower. Nope. In high school, Jeffrey continued to struggle to fit in and turned to drinking. Well, Dharma started drinking when he was at school and one of his former classmates remembered that he used to come in with a cup and he didn't have tea or coffee in this cup. He had scotch whiskey in it. Apparently, Jeffrey would walk into class with a styrofoam cup 
smelling of alcohol and the teacher asked him what he was drinking and he said it was his medicine. <laughs> oh, the 70s. Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. What a different time. <laughs> There's a thought that in hindsight... You ask why more people didn't try to intervene. You've got a kid coming drunk to school. But back in the 70s, when Dahmer's coming to school intoxicated, nobody thinks, gee, we better make sure we take care of this because what if he turns out to be a serial killer? In the summer of 1978, Jeffrey's parents finally divorced. But reportedly, it wasn't easy for Jeffrey. Liz knows more. His parents were were at each other's throats. It was not an amicable divorce at all. And, And each of them was forcing him to side with them. So he felt very much torn between his his parents. So so this was a real source of of conflict for him. And I think at this time, children often who have these experiences will retreat into themselves. They will preoccupy themselves with things that they're interested in and will lose themselves in, in their own fantasy world. And I think that's very much what happened with Dharma. Except for Dharma, he wasn't playing with Lego or he wasn't playing on video games. He was up to other weird stuff. After the divorce, Jeffrey's mother moved away with his younger brother and his father began living in a hotel. Um, So at 18, Jeffrey just found himself alone in his childhood home with nothing but his fantasies. And very soon, his fantasy world would collide with the real one. On June 18th, 1978, 19-year-old Stephen Mark Hicks left his home in North East Ohio to hitchhike to a rock concert in nearby Chippewa Lake Park. Jeffrey happened to be driving and stopped to pick up Stephen. Dahmer picked him up and invited him back to his house to have some drinks and I guess maybe smoke some dope. They were in the basement of his parents' home. They had had sex. And then Stephen Hicks wanted to leave. And that was when Dahmer just wanted so badly to have company. It sounds like such a textbook psychological thing, you know, abandonment syndrome, but this was at the heart of, of what made him so needy for company. Jeffrey really, really didn't want Stephen to leave. So rather than asking him politely to stay over, Dharma hit him over the head with a barbell. He strangled him, removed all his flesh, dissolved it in acid and smashed up his bones with a sledgehammer. Oh my God. Some of the body parts he took out to the woods behind his house. This was the first time that Jeffrey had killed another human I think that the first murder is a real milestone for Jeffrey Dahmer. So he knows now that he's capable of this. He knows that he's capable of taking someone else's life. So it's not just a a fantasy anymore. It's now a reality. He's gone from harming animals to harming people, and he's not going to stop. Forensic psychiatrist Helen Morrison agrees he won't stop. He's not desperate, but he becomes accustomed to it. He becomes ready to kill again and just kill and kill and kill and kill until he gets caught. After murdering Stephen Hicks in 1978, Jeffrey didn't kill again for years. He dropped out of Ohio State University after just one term. And then he spent most of his days drinking until his dad urged him to enlist into the US Army. 
The alcohol continued as a theme when he joined the army and he moved to, to Germany. Um, one of his, his former colleagues remembers him just sitting in his room drinking gin all day long, not even leaving his room to eat. He didn't give a fuck, does he? Where did he pee? In 1981, 21-year-old Jeffrey was discharged from the army after his drinking rendered him incapable of serving. Because it's the last thing you want. He spent a month sleeping on beaches in Florida before returning to Ohio. But his father was fed up of him, as you would be, because he, he does sound like a nightmare. And he sent Jeffrey to live with his grandma in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, to start a new life. By 1986, Jeffrey had been arrested a couple of times for exposing himself in public, once in front of a group of children, and the hopeless alcoholic had managed to find work at a local chocolate factory in Milwaukee and spent his spare time going to bars and bathhouses. I think being homosexual affected Dahmer in two ways. Firstly, it was a source of shame for him because it was quite a stigmatised social identity at the time. But also, it enabled him an opportunity when it came to his killing behaviour. So, being homosexual at this time, it was something that happened in the shadows, it was something that happened underground, and this was the ideal place for someone like him to go hunting. I think it, um, it makes me think a bit of Gacy. You know, yeah. the, the shame around being gay. Obviously, it was a thing of the time. But, like, maybe it ignites some anger that... They're not allowed to live how they want or not allowed to express them, that sort of not being able to express themselves. But also, perhaps, that they're also ashamed of themselves because societally, it's it's frowned upon, it's, it's taboo, yeah. you, you shouldn't be gay. Maybe they're angry at themselves for being gay and in order to regain some self-control, they do, you know... They just take things do, too, do, far. Too, too far. Because they're not in control of their sexual preferences, so they need some sort of... Yeah. Just turn sinister. I know. Do you, perhaps if it was like, except if, if being gay back then wasn't bad, seen as bad or taboo, or was accepted, do you think that perhaps that... Would it have got this far? Would it have got that far? It's very interesting. I think that is it's relevant. I think that that could be likely because it's almost like he's mutilating the object of his desires, isn't it? Yeah. He? He's mutilating um, this part of himself. I just think that from my perspective, the way I... It might not be the case, but it almost seems like their, their internal shame of themselves is fueling this anger. Yeah. And so they do this fucking crazy, horrible shit to make them feel like give them their power back. Agreed. By September 1987, over nine years since the murder of Stephen Hicks, Jeffrey Dahmer was ready to kill again. Here's Anne. His idea was to drug people and keep them with him so that they wouldn't, they wouldn't answer back to him, they wouldn't argue with him, they wouldn't fight him. They would stay with him. That's what he wanted. He wanted companionship. So he would go to the bars on Milwaukee's near south side and he would have conversations with people in these bars. And when he was talking to these people, these prospective victims, he would say, so what was it like when you came out? How was your family about it? So if your response was, oh, my family has been great, they're so supportive, I'm very close to my parents, that person wasn't gonna be a victim. But if the person answered, my parents aren't speaking to me anymore. I'm estranged from my family. I'm kind of on my own now. That was the perfect victim for Jeffrey Dahmer because he wanted to choose people 
who wouldn't be missed. And people that were easily manipulated because they were vulnerable and alone. Yeah, people looking Sad. for companion, yeah. like for companionship. Sad, isn't it? Between September 1987 and March 1988, Jeffrey had killed three men. The youngest was 14. And uh, he uh, basically told him, this young boy, that he would pay him to pose for nude photographs. But he ended up drugging and strangling him to death. He then dissolved the body in acid. This is District Attorney Mike McCann, who later served as prosecutor for the case. He cleverly developed a program to destroy the bodies, to get rid of the bodies, left no evidence. This was a very clever killer, very clever killer. He murdered two victims at his grandma's house where he was living. His grandmother became aware that he was bringing these young guys back to her house. I mean, obviously she had no no inkling of, of the atrocities he was committing on their bodies, um, although she was complaining also about a foul odour that she noticed. On September 25th, 1988, Jeffrey had moved into his own apartment on North 25th Street in Milwaukee, and he didn't wait long before attacking again. He's got his own space. He can do what he wants, right? So the very next day, he enticed a 13-year-old boy back to his home. Jeffrey attacked the boy, but once Dharma passed out drunk... The 13-year-old was able to escape and went straight to the police. In January 1989, Jeffrey was convicted of sexual assault, but the sentencing was delayed until May, during which time Jeffrey had, unbeknownst to the authorities, managed to claim a fifth victim. The 29-year-old served 10 months in prison, but when he was released in March 1990, he picked up right where he left off to horrifying extremes. So Jeffrey Dahmer really did ramp up his offending. The scale and the, the nature of his behaviour became all the more grotesque. So he wasn't just killing people, dismembering them and then disposing of their, their bodies. He started to do some really bizarre things. He was in the process of constructing some hideously diabolical shrine in his bedroom out of the skulls and skeletons of some of his victims. It's almost as though some bizarre, archaic thing had broken through and he was performing or creating some sort of ancient, you know, human sacrificial temple in this little Milwaukee apartment. Imagine being sat in the lunchroom in the chocolate factory with Jeffrey Dahmer, just like both nibbling your sandwiches, just ha having some small talk, and, and you just didn't know that that guy sat opposite you, tucking into his cheese and pickle sandwich, had a fucking shrine in his bedroom made out of bones and skulls. I know, it's mad, isn't it? <laughs> but also, he wasn't eating cheese and pickle. He's definitely the type of guy that would have some kind of, like, smoked fish or something in his sandwich. You know, that just, yeah. like, really fucking stinks because uh, he don't give a shit about well, anyone else. He's got some smoked ham, but, it, you know, it yeah. ain't ham. He's it's the kind a, of guy... Yeah. Tongue sandwich. He's the kind of guy who takes a fish curry into the office and reheats it. <sighs> yeah. And you're just like, you dick... Everything stinks. In 1990, Jeffrey killed four more young men. His MO was becoming more refined. He would offer his victims money to go back to his apartment with him to take pictures, nude photographs of them, and then perhaps to have sex. 
every single one of his victims went with him willingly. He would offer them a drink, and once he found out what they wanted to drink, he kept a lot of, a lot of things on hand, uh, different kinds of alcohol, and that's when he would put a drug in it that would put them to sleep or that would relax them so that they would pass out. So he would invite them back to his house, have a little photo shoot, have some drinks. Then he would use benzodiazepine, a tranquilizer, to drug his victims' drinks, making them completely unconscious. He'd have sex with them, he'd do what he wanted with them, and then as they were about to wake up out of their unconscious state, he'd strangle them to death. It wasn't the act of murder that thrilled him. It was the deadness of their bodies. So just like the fish, just like the dogs from his childhood. Dahmer liked necrophilia. He liked sex with unconscious people. He wasn't a slasher in the sense that he took delight in killing. His purpose was sex with these people, company with these people. That's hard to believe. So after having sex with the corpses, Jeffrey began to experiment with the victim's body parts dismember the corpses, dissolve parts of the bodies in these vats of acid he had, keep certain organs in his refrigerator, some of which he would actually cannibalize. Dahmer said that the cannibalism that he engaged in was born out of a curiosity. He wanted to find out, first of all, what that would be like. He also said that there was an element of wanting to make these people a part of him so they would be with him forever. literally like all words just left my brain then like it's just mad isn't it I know I say it all the time but it's mad I just can't wrap my head around that it does get worse he began experimenting with his semi-conscious victims so he would drill holes into their skulls bear in mind they're still alive he would put in muriatic acid into these holes to see if he could make them into like a zombie-like state so that he could keep them alive and subservient to him forever. I feel like we've walked onto a movie set. Yeah, (laughs) that's not real. That only happens (laughs) in horror films, sorry. yeah. And this is all going on in a small town. What? In May 1991... 31-year-old Jeffrey Dahmer was at the peak of his killing spree, if you can call it that. He had murdered 11 men and began collecting bones and skulls of his victims while eating their organs. Somehow, he went about his killings completely under the radar of the police and the people of Milwaukee. So Mike McCann comments on how good Jeff was at hiding his evidence. It was not known that we had a serial slayer loose in our city. We did not know because he was so cleverly disposing of the bodies. The families were reporting the sons were missing, but the police were not finding bodies. And not infrequently, young men, something happens in their life. They just leave, these up and leave town. That happens enough that the police don't get worried. If it's a woman, they'll immediately commit resources to investigate, but a young men, they don't. But on May 26, 1991, Jeffrey came close to capture after an encounter with a 14-year-old boy. Dahmer had taken Conorak's synthesis phone, a young Asian male who he found attractive. He met him in the mall, offered him money to go back to their his apartment. He went, and he began to work the ritual. Dahmer would drug him 
And then he began the process of this crude lobotomy, and he had drilled a hole in this young man's head. He took a break, he ran out to get more beer. While he was gone, Conorak ran out of the apartment. He was naked, he was completely dazed, and he was running up the alley next to Dahmer's apartment building. A woman in another apartment building saw him running up the alley and said, there's a boy running up the alley, something's going on, and then these women called the police. And then Dahmer appeared, and again, this is another like remarkable characteristic of these psychopaths, is that they have a, an ability to maintain you know, a kind of coolness uh, under the most extraordinarily high-pressured circumstances. So he walked up to the officers, good evening officers, he's very polite, he's sober, and he said, this is my boyfriend, he came to stay with me, we had a little bit too much to drink, and he ran out of the house. He said, how old is he? Dahmer said, he's 19. And the officers said, okay, well, just to make sure, let's all walk back up to the apartment together. The cops went in and looked around. They even peeked into the bedroom where there was a decomposing corpse of one of Dahmer's previous victims. But, you know, they took such a cursory look at it that they didn't even notice it. They were not on form that day. My God. But also, like, I guess it's one of those things as well. Like, you know, if they were women and they were like, oh, she's just on her period. Like, and then immediately be like, he's like, oh, he's my boyfriend. They're probably already like, oh, gays. Yeah. Like get away from me yeah um, them homosexuals them damn crazy homosexuals I don't know that they, they don't talk like that in Milwaukee do they I imagine that they were just probably felt at that time they probably felt yeah uncomfortable to be around yeah. gay men and like so oh we're in, yeah, we're, gonna go we're in the home of a homosexual we yeah. must leave um, well, sorry there's one thing that I couldn't shake the thought of was the fact that the young lad has a fucking hole in his skull. Yeah. Where's his... Is Why there, was he not a wet... He was drilling a hole in my head and I escaped. Well, why he was that not mentioned? Well, I guess he won't have been able to talk. Well, that's why he done it, isn't it? He's already had the acid in his head, so he can't articulate himself to ask for help because his brain has been damaged. Oh, fuck yeah. But, like, you've got to... What, are they just really small holes, like to not so, for somebody not to notice? Because like head wounds bleed loads, yeah. don't they? Like you yeah, don't have to do. Not. You just a tiny scratch on your head will bleed, like piss blood, won't it? Yeah. So I should imagine that cutting a little flap of skin or whatever, like to drill a hole, would. Um, Helen does not like this. Helen is a squeamish. Yeah, I'm tapping. You can. <laughs> it's just flappy skin. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, when you say it like that, it's a bit grim, isn't it? Let's move on. The two police officers did a shit job of their job that day and they just left them alone in the flat. In the early hours of the morning, he murdered Conorak. It makes me sad because I just think they were right there. He could have... Yeah, is it so sad? I think that really speaks volumes about the attitudes of the police at the time in terms of ethnic minorities, in terms of young people, in terms of the gay community. And that was another victim that could potentially have been saved. So there's this terrible thing going on behind closed doors and people just aren't seeing it. People aren't wanting to see it. Even the police are not joining up the dots and, and, and finding out what's really going on. So, so this is allowed to just bubble away and get worse. Jeffrey was completely free 
to carry on his path of bloodshed. And by July 1991, Jeffrey's desire to kill had become insatiable, you'd say. In just 20 days, he murdered four more people, bringing his total number of victims to 17. But Jeffrey's reign of absolute terror was about to come to an end. On July 22nd, he met Tracy Edwards. While they were together in the apartment, uh, Dahmer threw a handcuff on him. This was now the beginning of his ritual. Dahmer had taken photographs of his victims in various stages of dismemberment, Polaroids. And those were sitting on the dresser inside the bedroom. They weren't sitting out in the, in the main living room. But there was some speculation that Tracy Edwards had perhaps seen that. And he ran out of the, out of the apartment in his underwear, ran down the street. And when he saw the police car, Tracy Edwards has said his intention was just to get the handcuff off. That's all he wanted. He stopped these cops to say, hey, can you just get this off of me? So he stopped, and the officers start talking to him about what he saw, and then they said, well, we should probably check this out. Let's all go back to the apartment. Dahmer answered, and the minute he saw that it was the police, he tried to shut the door on them. The police pushed the door open a bit. They started struggling with him, and then finally he just gave in. And that was when... Dahmer was officially finished. He was finished killing, and he knew that he was finished. The police officers immediately arrested him. They had found the remains of some of his victims in his apartment. The man whose job it was to prosecute the killer was Milwaukee District Attorney Mike McCann. They saw the body parts, and then one of the officers said he heard a scream. Then he realized later he was the one who screamed when he saw the body. So they knew they were dealing with a very serious offense. Dahmer did not resist, a little slight resistance, but Dahmer was taken into custody, and the investigation was initiated. Once in custody at the local police station, Jeffrey had made his confession. When Dahmer was arrested, there were already a number of bodies in his quarters. He gave full confessions to the police, detailing this, his involvement in 16 separate slayings, most of the time, he did not know the name of the victims. When Dahmer remembered a crime that he might not have shared with the detectives, he would have the jail call them, whether it was the middle of the night or the middle of the day, and say, I remembered something else. Please come over. Dahmer had said he wanted to make sure that he didn't forget anything because he wanted those families to have closure. I'm not sure about that. I that may be giving Jeffrey Dahmer more credit than he is, is deserved, but he did claim to, to want to try and remember so that all of those families would, would have closure. Although he confessed to killing 16 people in the state of Wisconsin, Jeffrey was first charged with four counts of murder on July 25th, 1991. Eleven further counts were added in August. The following month, investigators in Ohio found teeth and bone fragments belonging to Stephen Hicks in the woods near Jeffrey's family home. Preliminary hearing was set for January 1992. His legal team were going to argue that the killings were the work of a madman. The issue wasn't going to be did he do it or not. The issue was going to be was he sane or insane when he did it. And his hope was that at least in even one of the cases, he could induce the jury to believe that he was insane. Under those circumstances, he would be sentenced not to a prison, but to a mental health facility. People would say to me, Mike, 
This guy killed 16 people. He was drinking their blood, eating parts of their body. He must have been crazy. It sounds like he's crazy to say that, but that's not what the insanity rule is. I don't think that he can claim insanity. Of course he knows what he's doing. In an, insan- in an insanity defence, the defendant admits the action but asserts a lack of culpability based on mental illness. No, this is just a man that has very fucked up um, fantasies and yeah. preferences. The city wanted justice, as you can imagine. So they wanted to see the man the press were calling Milwaukee cannibal locked away in prison. The trial of Jeffrey Dahmer would not only be one of the biggest cases in Wisconsin, but United States history and probably the world, actually. The trial of Jeffrey Dahmer began on January 30th, 1992. Journalist Anne Schwartz had a front row seat. The courtroom was an odd spectacle because court TV was still new in in the game back then. And the idea that you would come to court and you'd be on television was still kind of new to people. It was the kind of media attention to a trial that Milwaukee hadn't seen in a very, very long time, if ever. I can remember so clearly the first time Jeffrey Dahmer's initial appearance in court when he walked in. I think the real fear that people had when they first saw Jeffrey Dahmer was that he looked like everybody else. He was a good-looking young man, and he is not the person that you would look at and say, stay away from that guy. It would be up to the Milwaukee District Attorney, Mike McCann, to try to prove that Jeffrey was sane and responsible for his crimes. Guilty wasn't going to be an issue, but we wanted the jury to know enough about the facts, and so the defense, to say, all right, what really happened here? How atrocious was it? How planned was it? How was he behaving? What skills were involved? He couldn't control himself. It was a lot to take in because the testimony was so graphic. We all knew Mike McCann he was a religious man, and we'd seen him in, we've seen him in court. He's a, he was a good attorney. But the kinds of things that he was reciting out of the criminal complaint and the confession were unheard of. These things were unheard of, and they happened right here in our city. He did it quietly. He concealed the bodies, cleverly concealed, destroyed the bodies, planned it well, laid in the equipment, got the drugs that he used, Knowing that he worked, the thought he was insane. The way he conducted himself uh, was in a way that it seemed that he was sane. And that's what we wanted to get across to the jury. McCann employed the help of psychiatry expert, Dr. Philip Resnick. The more bizarre the crimes, such as involving cannibalism, the more the lay public wants to think that guy had to be out of his mind. But in looking at it from the actual strict definition of insanity, generally, the diseases of paraphilias, like necrophilia, where someone has trouble controlling themselves, are not viewed, uh, for the most part, as diseases which qualify for insanity because of the social implications. One of the points that I made as a consultant is, even if you have necrophilia, and even if you have trouble controlling your impulse, the majority of necrophiliacs will select a setting where they can accomplish this without homicide. So some become assistants in morgues 
or assistance in pathology labs where they may have access to dead victims. Others will actually disinter bodies after they're buried so that one does not have to actually kill to exercise the necrophilia's uh, impulse. And that's one of the reasons I felt that he didn't qualify for insanity. Because he planned everything. It was a good point, isn't it? Like, he knew what he was doing. Imagine being a necrophiliac, though. Well, once again, it's just it's a, an alien concept isn't to me. It's like, what's good about that? Shag a dead person. Oh, God, no. The trial basically became a debate between specialist psychiatrists in regards to the state of Jeffrey's mental health. I don't know what, what's there to debate, but meanwhile, Jeffrey is sat there watching the whole thing play out over two weeks. Dahmer was very calm in court. When you talk of you assessing a person by what you see, no one studying him would believe he was insane. He was in con, he was watching what was going on. He wasn't reacting in any negative way. Uh, he conducted himself in a very rational way, a very proper way. On February 15th, the jury had reached a verdict on Jeffrey's sanity. Jeffrey Dunn was ruled to be sane by the jury and on February 17th, 1992, Judge Lawrence Graham sentenced him to life imprisonment for each of the 15 counts against him. When the verdict was announced in court, there was a great shout from the gallery, especially from the victim's families that cried. I was pleased in the sense, happy, not exuberant, but happy that this danger was removed from our community, that the jury had not been hoodwinked, that the jury realized this chap was not insane. Jeffrey would have to serve a minimum of 936 years. He was immediately sent to the Columbia Correctional Institution in Portage. Three months later in Ohio, Dharma was found guilty of murdering Stephen Hicks. He was given yet another life sentence. In 1993... Dharma did lots of different interviews from prison. In one conversation with Dateline, he said control was a leading motive behind the murder, saying, I could completely control a person, a person that I found physically attractive, and keep them with me as long as possible, even if it meant just keeping part of them. Dahmer always said that he was compelled to kill, that they were urges. He said, I had urges that I could not control. He also said that even though he was in prison... He was relieved that the killing was done. He still had the urges. They didn't go away. He was just in a place where he couldn't act on them. And that is the point of prison, to keep everyone else safe. He expressed that he had a problem and deserved retribution. He went on to say, I didn't ever want freedom. Frankly, I wanted death for myself. This was a case to tell the world that I did what I did, not for the reasons of hate. I hated no one. I know I was sick or evil or both. Now I believe I was sick. The doctors have told me about my sickness and now I have some peace. Locked away for the rest of his life, Jeffrey ended up finding solace in the Bible. And so in 1994, he decided to get baptised. The prison called on local minister Roy Ratcliffe. So I was quite surprised to be uh, escorted to a little room and uh, left alone. And then uh, Jeff Camp comes to the room and he, he closes the door. And then there's he and I sitting together across the table. Uh, and I'm thinking for a moment, wow, I'm in a room with a man who's killed several people. So yeah, that was a little bit uh, disconcerting. But I, I was there for a purpose and for a reason. So I wanted to find out what was going on and to see what I could do to help. So my fears were set aside primarily because of my focus on what I was trying to do. 
Jeff was a normal guy, courteous, very respectful uh, to me. When we shook hands, I noticed his hands were rather small. Looking at his hands and thinking, wow, these are the hands that uh, strangled people, these are the hands that murdered people, these are the hands that dismembered people. Uh, interesting fact here, Danny. I feel like this is like some universe circle of life shit going on. On May 10th, 1994, the same day that notorious killer John Wayne Gacy was executed, Jeffrey Dahmer was baptised. That's weird, isn't it? Yeah. Oh, that's a little, I like that little nugget of info. Yeah. Then the door opened and I, I walked into the room and Jeff had already crawled into the tub and, was, and the only thing that was above the water was just simply his head. And so I, I baptized you in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit for the forgiveness of your sins and pushed his head down under. And then when he came back up, I said something I often say to people when I baptize them. I said, welcome to the family of God. He said, well, thank you very much. But just six months after he was baptized, Dharma and another convicted murderer, Jesse Anderson, were attacked and killed by a fellow inmate. Christopher Scarver took a barbell, went into the bathroom and beat both Jeffrey Dahmer and Jesse Anderson to death. There were a number of people who felt that Jeffrey Dahmer got exactly what he deserved. When I called his mother, she said, well, now everybody got what they want. The monster is dead. And then she said, he was my son. He was my boy. I mean, some people see some sort of poetic symmetry in the fact that Dahmer's first murder uh, was the one in which he bludgeoned the teenage hitchhiker Stephen Hicks to death with a, a barbell and that he himself died in a very, very similar way. Isn't it? There is some karma there, isn't there? Yeah. I think with this, the thing with prison is you have justice by the law by being sent to prison. Like, you're going to prison, you're being locked away forever, but you are ultimately still at the hands of the people. Yeah. Because, like, you know, prison is obviously full of various different people for doing various different things. But if you're in prison with someone that does something really fucking terrible, you're going to be like, you piece of shit. You know, yeah. you can still be angry and then you're still at the hands of these people that you're in prison with. So I think, I think he got what he deserved. Yeah. Really. Jeffrey's flat on North 25th Street, where he murdered 12 men and kept a macabre collection of their remains, was demolished in November 1992. Jeffrey Dahmer committed some of the most evil acts that I have ever written about or heard about or seen on a television show because they were real. I don't know if he was sane or insane because that's not my training to figure that out, but I can absolutely say that he did some of the most evil acts known to man. And that was the story of Jeffrey Dahmer. Heavy shit. That was a br- that was a good one. I think that that was like so historically relevant. It's juicy. It was juicy. And yeah, it was a good one. And now I know what people are talking about when they say his name in songs and stuff. Yep. Wow. That was a ride, wasn't it? Mm. Has that? Okay, go back to the question at the beginning what? of the episode. What, what was that? Would you try the human meat? Would you still try the human meat? Yeah, it was, yeah, yeah. It, it, someone could gourmet cook me a piece of like thigh meat, you know. Have Season you seen? It. Interesting, you say this. Yeah. Have you seen the film Fresh? No. Watch it, and that recommendation goes to everybody. 
um, on the sub, you know, while we're on the subject of cannibals, well, are you, is this some sort of like, is this about cannibals? Or are you trying to get some like no. vegetarian sort of like? Oh no, it's definitely not a vegetarian film. Oh, okay, I was gonna say you're not trying to. It's not a spoiler to say that it's about cannibalism. Okay, all right. Next time on Devils in the Dark with me, Helen Anderson. And me, Danny Howard. It's the season finale. Can you believe it? We've got this far. No, I can't. Well, I can. Thank you, everybody, for for sticking with us. If you're still here, thank you. Yeah. We're wrapping up the season with a killer of enormous proportions. In more ways than one. Hold on to your hats. We'll be looking at Edmund Kemper. Subscribe or follow to make sure you never miss an episode of Devils in the Dark. In the meantime, if you've been affected by any of the themes in the episode, please do check out the description for lots of helpful resources. Special thanks to Woodcut Media and our wonderful producers at Audio Boom Studios. Thank you. Goodbye. Goodbye.